Good morning, everyone. This morning, I, it's my pleasure to be able to read the story of Christ being born to you. If you'd like to turn with me, Luke 2, uh, verses 1 through 20. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one there in front of you, or you can always use your phone or whatever. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Cyrenius was governor in Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloth, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. So it was when the angel had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Good morning. Thank you, Laura, for your work on the organ this morning. And Sandra, thank you for reading that, that story. I chose all 20 verses of that to be read this morning, even though we're only going to focus on the first few. I did that for a personal reason. 
Our family never attended church as I was growing up. We were not followers of Jesus. We never prayed. We never read the Bible. Although mother had an enduring fascination with the supernatural. She believed in UFOs. She read psychics like Gene Dixon and uh, Edgar Cayce. She was what we would refer to today as a spiritual seeker. She seemed to know instinctively that God was real, even though she didn't know him, and she didn't know how to know him. And she'd never had any experience with the church growing up herself either. But when my brother and I were very young, she decided to read the Bible. It was just one more spiritual book that she could explore. And after she finished with that, she decided that her family ought to be worshiping in a church. She felt drawn to this God whose story she had just read. So we tried a couple of the neighborhood churches, although for one reason or another, neither one of them worked out for us. But there was a little stretch of time, maybe a month or two, that we attended. It was either the Baptist Church or the Presbyterian Church, one or the other up there on Goodyear Boulevard. They were right across the street from each other. We tried them both. And in that short window of time was the only time that our little family ever worshipped together. And it happened to be right at Christmas. Now, I don't remember much about the experience other than I didn't like having to give up a day that was clearly made for little boys to be playing and have to get all dressed up and go sit quietly and listen and not fidget. But there was one significant thing that I can still remember clear as a bell to this day. It happened during Sunday school. It was probably the kindergarten class, might have been primary, early primary the teacher handed out a sheet of paper with a drawing on it of some angels and a young woman, a little baby in a cradle and a, a star and a candle. And we got to color those little pictures with crayons in the Sunday school class. On that paper were also some words that had been put there by typewriter. Actually, this was a mimeograph sheet. This was in the days before copying machines. And the title said, A Christmas Eve Program for the Family. Now, I don't think that I had ever heard the real Christmas story before this. Um, maybe I had, I don't know. But at that point, Christmas for us was clearly about Santa Claus and reindeer and colored lights and lots of cookies and the pure magic of Christmas morning with all those wonderful, wonderful presents under the tree. But that day I brought home that piece of paper with the angels and the woman and the baby and the star and the kind of corny script that told the Christmas story with parts for each member of the family. And when mom saw that paper, she said that we would do that little Christmas program on Christmas Eve that year, just like the paper said. And so we did. The mother's part started off first. And it called for lighting a candle of purest white in honor of his birthday night. And she let me light the candle, which was really cool. Because all little boys are pyros at heart. And I was no exception. We love to play with matches. And then the second part was for, for the father. So dad took his part, which was the reading of the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke out of an actual Bible. There were parts for the children, little poems to recite like, 
Christmas is remembering the shepherds on the hill when all the world was silent and all the world was still. Kind of cornball, isn't it? Of course, this was in the days before the internet, way before then. So some person, probably the Sunday school teacher, had to sit down and make all this stuff up. You couldn't just download it, you know. There were places in the script for singing Silent Night and Away in a Manger, and then it finished with a little printed prayer to be, to be read or prayed by either the mother or the father, thanking God for Jesus who came at Christmas. This was the very first time that I can remember hearing the story about why we had Christmas at all, how it came to be. And when the program was finished, we all had our Christmas Eve ice cream sundaes with as much ice cream as we wanted, which was a tradition in our family. And then mom took that paper and she folded it up and she put it in a little wooden chest that she kept on top of her dresser. Well, by the time the next Christmas rolled around, we had long since stopped attending any church. But as we got ready for our Christmas Eve Sundays, Mom went to the bedroom, brought out a candle, Bible, and that piece of paper, which she unfolded. And we all gathered around the coffee table in in the living room in front of the Christmas tree, and we had that little Christmas program again. I got to light the candle. Dad read the story from Luke chapter 2. We sang the songs, and Mom did the prayer at the end. And for the next decade and a half, till I left home in college, every Christmas Eve, without fail, that was our tradition. Some years, my kid brother got to light the candle. Some years, I got to light the candle. All the way through high school, into college, light that candle. All of us would gather around on that magical, intimate evening of the year, our little family, and we'd read from that program, from that kindergarten-level paper, and hear Dad read the story of the birth of Jesus. And then Mom would pray. So that's where I learned about the real Christmas. Years later, after I had left home, Colette and I were married. I got a Christmas card from Mom and Dad. It was the last one I would ever get from the both of them because Dad died that next year. But inside the card was a folded-up piece of paper, kind of yellowed and ratty around the edges. And you know what it was, don't you? And so for a number of years, it became a family tradition in our home with my kids on Christmas Eve to have that little program. And here's a picture of it. You can see it. I scanned it last night into the slides to show you. That's my amazing coloring there in crayon. Yes, good artwork. I know most of our Sabbath school teachers now for the kids are probably across the way, but if there are any of you here, please, please don't ever become discouraged or complacent about telling little people about Jesus because you just don't know where it's liable to lead. You really don't know what God is going to do with what you are doing, how God is going to multiply it and use it. And sometimes the simplest things have the most profound effect. We never set foot in a church again as a family, but something stuck for us. And to this day, whenever I hear Luke 2 read, I'm back there with mom and dad, my brother, Christmas Eve, thinking about the real Christmas story. It's just good. So 
Sandra, where are you? Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. All right. So to begin now, I want to ask you two questions. These are, these are uh, simple questions. You can either answer the one with a yes and no. You can answer them both yes, both no, or I don't know. All right? But here they are. We're going to start out. How many of you are really glad it's Christmas time? Put your hands up. All right? Good. How many of you are going to be really glad when it's over? Put your hands up. Yeah, about the same, same number of people. Some of you are the same people. Okay? Charles Dickens is one of the better-known Christmas authors on account of that perennial favorite, A Christmas Carol, and Ebenezer Scrooge and Tim Cratchit. But he's also remembered for his classic, A Tale of Two Cities, which was not written about Christmas at all. But the opening line kind of describes Christmas pretty well. And you remember how it begins. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And in a way, that's Christmas. There is no other holiday that has the financial impact, the emotional impact, the religious impact that Christmas does. And no other holiday lasts even a quarter as long. It just goes on and on. People love Christmas and they hate it. They look forward to it and we dread it. It's kind of schizophrenic holiday. The best of times and the worst of times. Its celebration is rooted in a miracle of humanity that brings about a huge excess in its celebrants. Christmas is a wonderful, stressful time. A number of years ago, psychologists developed an inventory to measure stress levels in people's lives. Um, the various stress-producing life circumstances were assigned numerical values corresponding to that situation's demonstrated ability to create stress or disrupt life. At the top of the list of stressors is the death of a spouse, followed closely by the death of a child, and then divorce. Guess what's number four? Christmas. Yeah, no kidding. Number four. Death of a spouse is worth 100 points on the inventory. Christmas is worth 60. The head of stuff like losing a job, moving to a new town, even having surgery. And it comes every year. It is the most wonderful, stressful time of the year. And we are right in the thick of it right now. There's eight more shopping days left until Christmas, right? Now, I will have to say, with our kids gone and out of the house, uh, it is not as stressful as it used to be. There were some really hard years for a while, and we would be absolutely exhausted by the time January rolled around. But it's not nearly so wonderful either with them gone. You may be tempted to think, well, that's kind of weird, kind of strange that something so fundamentally good can produce such anxiety levels. If so, you might want to think about this. It's always been that way. Always been that way. The very nature of Christmas is dualistic. The best of times, the worst of times. Or, to be more precise, the worst of times, the best of times. What we'll think about this morning is why that's so and what it means for us. Sandra read the whole story just a few moments ago, but we're going to zero in on just the first few verses in Luke 2. 
last week we thought about just the first verses of Matthew. Today we'll do the same thing with Luke. So here are those first verses again. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. In Matthew's account, he includes a similar kind of statement. He says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Luke writes as a historian, Matthew, not so much. But both of them are careful to include these names in their nativity accounts. So right off, we have these three characters in the story. Caesar Augustus, Herod, Quirinius. These aren't names that mean a whole lot to most of us nowadays. If we give them any thought at all, it's because normally we're used to hearing them when the Christmas story is read. The question is, why are they here? As far as Luke is concerned, some people think it's because he was into trivia. It was the second census, not the first, nor the third. It was when Quirinius was governor of Syria, not Lysander. It would be like saying, when Donald Trump was president of the United States, and Jay Inslee was governor of Washington, and Charlie Bush was town manager in Squim, we would know that to be 2017, right? Couldn't be 2016 because Trump wasn't president. Couldn't be 2015 because Steve Burkett was manager then, not Charlie Bush. We do know that Luke was a careful researcher, as he reminds us in the prologue of his gospel. And certainly in the third chapter, historical references are part of what provide the accurate dating of the baptism of Jesus, which happened in A.D. 27, exactly as foretold in the great messianic prophecies of Daniel 9. And the addition of such detail in first century writing authenticates the story as genuine in an era when legends and myths and fiction were completely devoid of any kind of of detail like that. The fact that Matthew and Luke add these names not only fixes the event at a certain point in history, but lends genuineness to the narrative. It's not just a pleasant little fiction. It really happened. But maybe Luke isn't just adding names here as a historical footnote. Maybe Luke, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, is saying something even more significant. Because although we, you know, Herod and Augustus and Quirinius are are not household names, we do know some things about them. We know about Caesar Augustus. He was the first and greatest perhaps greatest of all the Roman emperors. He ruled from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. Our month August is named after him. Augustus was really not so much a name as it was a title. It means reverend. He was considered by his subjects and by himself to be of divine quality. God Not with a big G, little g, of course, but a God nonetheless. He demanded and he received worship. In addition to being absolute ruler of the empire, he was also a very talented administrator and a cunning accountant. He is the one credited for bringing bringing, uh, empire-wide peace, um, 
the famous Pax Romana. But we also know that that peace came by the power of the sword, purchased with tens of thousands of wooden crosses all throughout the empire, upon which were executed common criminals, petty thieves, enemies of the state, riffraff of all kinds, even minor troublemakers. It came at a price. We know that in the 14th year of his reign, Caesar Augustus made a grand sacrifice to the Roman gods for the peace of the world. He built a huge marble altar, a marvel of sculpture, around which stood a wall carved with the stories of Rome. Romulus and Remus suckled by a she-wolf, Mother Earth with her children on her knees, figures representing air and water. The monument was called Augustus's Altar of Peace. Dedicated on his 56th birthday, its surface was inscribed with these words. The birthday of the God was the beginning of the good news to the world on his account. Augustus. The divine king brought peace and good news to the world. Herod, on the other hand, was an absolutely brutal monarch. Born into a politically well-connected family in 73 BC, he used whatever tools were available to him to advance his thirst for absolute power. They might be political favors. Twice, he actually lowered his taxes on his people. Some things never change. Once, during a famine, famine, he had some of his own gold bricks melted down in order to purchase corn for the starving masses. He financed great building projects for special interest groups, the most famous being the renovation and enlargement of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. But Herod wasn't wasn't, uh, interested in his people. He certainly didn't care about the poor, and he couldn't care less about the worship of the true God of Israel, the nation upon whose throne he sat. He was simply smart enough to know that loyalty could be bought, and he served others only because in so doing he served himself more. Relationships were merely a conduit for him to more power. And when political favors wouldn't do the trick, he had no qualms whatsoever about using more ruthless tools, deception, bribery, blackmail, betrayal, murder. Once, Herod hosted a lavish dinner party in his opulent palace. The invitees included a few who he secretly suspected of working against him, would-be rivals, After everyone had enjoyed a sumptuous meal, he had them all drowned in the courtyard pool. Herod was fiercely protective of his turf. He had two of his wives executed on suspicion of disloyalty, including the one he loved dearly. He also killed his mother-in-laws and three of his own sons. While on his deathbed, he ordered the assassination of his eldest heir to the throne. That was Herod. Brutal, hated, greatly feared. Quirinius, on the other hand, isn't quite so well established in history. We do know that he was a decorated soldier of a nation noted especially for its military brutality. He was politically shrewd, absolutely devoted to Caesar Augustus, and he knew how to cover his backside. A contemporary writer described him as living in envied opulence. As part of the hierarchy 
presiding over a nation hated by Israel. He represented everything detestable to a Jew. So when Luke and Matthew tell their Christmas stories, that's how they begin. In the days of King Herod, in the days of Caesar Augustus, he issued a decree while Quirinius was governor. Maybe what Luke is saying is something like this. In the midst of the worst possible atmosphere, in the midst of the most despairing, depressing, and defeatist of times, in those days of a brutal tyrant like Herod and a would-be god like Augustus and a Roman oppressor named Quirinius, at that time when peace and good news came only at the point of a sword, look what happened. Look what God did in the midst of the very worst possible human scenario. In other words, it wasn't a Norman Rockwell Christmas. It wasn't jingle bells, jingle bells all the way. It was the worst of times. But God turned it into the best of times. The absolute very best. I recently reread uh, the opening paragraphs, the opening chapters of a wonderful biography of Christ called The Desire of Ages. Listen to a few sentences here that I'll read to you describing what life was like in those days. Century after century passed away. The voices of the prophets ceased. The hand of the oppressor was heavy upon Israel. While the light of truth seemed to have departed from among men, there were souls who were looking for a light, who were filled with perplexity and sorrow. In the region of the shadow of death, men sat unsolaced. Humanity, becoming more and more degraded through the ages of transgression, called for the coming of a Redeemer. Satan had been working to make the gulf deep and unpassable between earth and heaven. His strife for supremacy had seemed to be wholly successful. The dark shadow that Satan cast over the world grew deeper and deeper. All the agencies, all the agencies for depraving the souls of men had been put into operation. The Son of God, looking upon the world, beheld suffering and misery. He looked with compassion upon those who were being corrupted, murdered, and lost Bewildered and deceived, they were moving on in gloomy procession toward eternal ruin, to death in which is no hope of life, toward night to which comes no morning. Life was difficult beyond belief in those days. It was the worst of times. But in those very days, with hope all but extinguished, look what God did. When the fullness of time had come, and in, it was as bad as it could get, that's when Jesus came. That's when Jesus came. Madeline Engel was an American writer and poet. She specialized in works for young adults. She was a Christian, passed away in 2007. Here's what she wrote about Christmas. That was no time for a child to be born in a land in the crushing grip of Rome. Honor and truth were trampled by scorn, yet here did the Savior make his home. When is the time for love to be born? 
The inn is full on planet earth, and by greed and pride the sky's torn, yet love still takes the risk of birth. Life can be difficult in our day too, can it not? And yet look what God still does. I know some of you have probably read the book by M. Scott Pett, A Road Less Traveled. It begins with three words. Life is difficult. And it is. Often I meet with people or hear about somebody to whom life has dealt an especially difficult hand. Just this week, I listened to to two new stories from people who are really facing some tough stuff. Sometimes when I hear the story, it's hard to keep tears from coming as, as it unfolds. And some of you here are facing genuine heartbreak this time of year. Yet in the worst possible days of our lives, God gives us a festival of hope, and it's called Christmas. And by the way, isn't it interesting that this festival of hope, this celebration of the light of the world being born into our darkness comes at the very time of year when darkness is the deepest and longest. I mean, we have like, what, three hours of daylight now? (laughs) It's just terrible. In in five days, the days are going to start getting longer again. Not by much, but they're going to start. Now, I know, I know this... This probably isn't the actual time of year when Jesus was born. There are, in fact, pagan connections associated with the time of year of the winter solstice. You know, attempts to lure the sun back again to to shorten the darkness and to lengthen up the time of light. But we can choose to think about it another way. You know, we can choose to think about it as the most fitting time of the year for the sun to be born. The son whom we don't have to beg or lure. The son who is given to this dark world as a gift at Christmas. Who came freely and willingly. The light of the world stepping down into darkness. At the time of this planet's greatest spiritual darkness. At the point of its longest night, Jesus came. In the days of King Herod and Caesar Augustus and Quirinius. In those days, Mary and Joseph made their way to Bethlehem. And we remember Christmas was surely not an easy time for them, was it? It would have been the worst of times. It was not easy for Mary to hear the words of of that angel and make her courageous decision, let it be to me according to your words. It wasn't easy for Mary at the nine-month mark of her pregnancy to ride 80 miles on the back of a donkey or to walk because we really don't know whether Joseph even owned a donkey. We just assume he did because we see all the pictures. But either way, walking or riding, it would have been difficult. Why did she even choose to go with Joseph anyway? Women were not expected or encouraged to appear with their husbands uh, to register for the tax. She could have stayed with her mother at home. She could have gone back to Elizabeth's and stayed there. Yet in spite of that, Mary went. In spite of the terrible stress of that journey, the hardship, she went to Bethlehem. Why did she do that? Maybe she just wanted to be with Joseph when her baby boy was born. Or 
Maybe she remembered the words of the prophet Micah of old. Out of you, Bethlehem, shall come one who is to be ruler over my people Israel, whose goings forth have been from ancient times, even from everlasting. Maybe it was impossible to forbid her from going because she knew that great Augustus, the Savior with good news for the world, whose mighty decree had sent them to Bethlehem, was nothing more than a speck of lint on the pages of prophecy, a mere errand boy for the God of heaven. Nobody could have kept her from that journey. But how she ever made it, that's a miracle in itself. I remember when Colette was seven months pregnant with Andrew, our firstborn. We were living in St. Mary's, Idaho, and the city limits on the south side are right up, up adjoining an area on the map that is marked wilderness. Well, my mother and dad had come out from Ohio from a vi- for a visit, and uh, my mother was intrigued by that label, wilderness, and she said she wanted to go and see it. Well, we said it doesn't look a whole lot different than what you can see right out the front window, so just have a look. But that was not going to suffice. She said she wanted to go drive in the wilderness and see a bear. Well, we'd never seen a bear. We'd lived there four years, hadn't seen a bear in in St. Mary's, Idaho, but that's what she wanted. We had an old four-wheel drive Subaru at that time, so the four of us got in the car and we drove up one of those logging roads into the wilderness. It was a pretty rutted road. A little bit bumpy in places. About 30 minutes up that road, lo and behold, guess what ran right out in front of us? A big old black bear with her cub. Yeah. My mother was so excited to see that bear. But by then it was too late. Colette had begun feeling strange sensations. And by the time we got home, she had started preterm labor. At month seven, she spent the rest of her pregnancy in and out of the hospital and fully in bed. I lost a few pounds during that time. Imagine, you know, if 10 miles in a comfortable Subaru will do that, imagine what 80 miles walking or riding a donkey would do. Of course, we know what happened. By the time they made Bethlehem, there was nowhere to stay. No warm bed, no clean sheets, no hospital. Even the dirty inn was full up. If you have ever finished a hard day's travel, and you're hot and tired and hungry and sore, and every motel you come to has the no vacancy light on, then you can might begin to imagine how they felt. If under those same circumstances you're penniless, far from home, far from anyone who loves you or cares a whit about you or even knows you, and you're pregnant and doubled over with contractions, then you get a little better idea. And if under all those conditions, if you've ever been so desperate that even a filthy, stinking stable looks appealing, you're close to understanding the circumstances of that first Christmas. It was tough. But on that night, a child was born. A son was given. Angels sang that night. A brilliant star lit up the sky that night. The worst of times became the best of times. And so it can be even for us today. Christmas is our festival of hope. 
in the midst of whatever would drag us down and suffocate hope. This is what Luke tells us. Hope in the midst of darkness. And it's a theme that runs through his whole gospel. Through the most difficult of circumstances comes the hope of the ages. Maybe it can run through our lives as well. Christmas is one of the toughest times of year for people who have been battered for life. Some of you will be alone for the first time on Christmas this year. Others of you suspect that this might be the last Christmas that you will have with somebody that you love very much. You may not be able to speak it, but you know it. For some, Christmas reopens the pain of old wounds. And yet we come together to hope and to celebrate hope, to sense again God's redemption in a difficult time, to affirm once more his goodness and his faithfulness to his promises, to affirm his working to bring good from bad, to bring ultimate good from the deepest bad. He gave us Jesus. Let me quote for you once more from Madeline Langle. In her book, Two-Part Invention, she writes of her experience of losing her husband of 40 years. She says, It's when things go wrong, when the good things do not happen, when our prayers seem to have been lost, that God is most present. We don't need the sheltering wings when things go along smoothly. We are closest to God in the darkness, stumbling along blindly. Of all the holidays celebrated throughout the world by Christians and non-Christians alike, Christmas is the most universal. Not Easter, not Hanukkah, not Ramadan, but Christmas. The whole world seems to yearn for the experience of it. Meg Greenfield used to write a column every other week for Newsweek magazine. Several years before she died in 1999, she wrote this remarkable statement. Writing about Christmas, she said, The non-Christian world envies and covets Christmas, wants to participate in it, is forever seeing just how close it can come to this particular experience without threatening the imperatives of its own religion. The non-Christian world is bent on universalizing the reach of Christmas. Imagine that. Because it's all about a God who turns the worst of times into the best of times. He gave us Jesus. Father, you have been so good to us. And even though sometimes life does seem hard, we remember you are faithful and you are good. And you come at the most difficult of times and you give us exactly what, you, what we need. Throughout this next week or two as we celebrate Christmas with all the, in all the ways that the world does it, many of which are good ways, we pray that we might remember that you are faithful and you are good and you invite us again to, to put our faith and our trust in you, that you will fulfill your promises to us, that our lives will be made good, that we have an enormous good to look forward to. Thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus Father, for sending him. And Jesus, thank you for your, your willingness and eagerness to come to our dark world. We welcome you 
into our hearts, and we ask it in your name. Amen.